This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Hurricane season has officially begun and forecasters are anticipating a busy season. Seminole County Emergency Manager Alan Harris says no matter how many storms spin up in the Atlantic, he's just preparing for one, a hurricane that could hit Seminole County. Alan, we're in hurricane season yet again um, and it kind of feels like we're still sort of digging out from the craziness of the pandemic. So how are you approaching 2021 differently when it comes to prepping for whatever's to come over the next six months? Sure. So we're doing a lot of the lessons learned that we had during 2020. And although we did not have a hurricane directly hit us, uh, we did plan for Hurricane Isaias to hit us. And we did do uh, a lot of training and exercising and preparation, even to the point of uh, preparing a shelter to be opened during Isaias. Uh, thank God ECS turned to the north and uh, just brushed the state of Florida with limited damage at all on the coastline, nothing inland, and uh, and then went up into um, uh, in the north part, northern parts of uh, United States of America. So uh, we of course uh, learned some things with that. Uh, we had a plan in 2020. We'll be utilizing some of those same uh, mechanisms. So. That includes uh, early evacuation, uh, social distancing and shelters. Um, There are some new laws and rules, so um, we are really encouraging people to go to a friend or family member's house instead of coming to an emergency shelter. Uh, If there's any way for people to evacuate early or get out uh, early and get to a friend or family member's house that lives in a concrete masonry block structure, that's the best option. Um, because of some of the new laws, uh, we are unable to uh, ask people to wear masks. Uh, we are unable to ask people if they have vaccines or not uh, because of the new state law. So um, if you come to an emergency shelter, chances are uh, you will be uh, in a place where people aren't wearing masks. Uh, you don't know if they're vaccinated and they certainly uh, could potentially have COVID. You know, so we don't know all those things. We will do our best to screen them, but we don't know. If you did have to open up a shelter or two, if there was a storm approaching, would you consider offering vaccines at that site? Uh, we would at the end. So as people exit, uh, we certainly would uh, make that available to those individuals. That is actually uh, one of the, the uh, they, they've been saying best practices from other emergencies across uh, the United States of some tornadoes have happened and things like that. They offered vaccines as people exit. Now, you may wonder, well, why are you not uh, offering it when you walk in the door? Well, because some of these uh, have side effects and some of the side effects, uh, depending on the individual, um, could be like flu type symptoms. So we don't want people to get scared uh, because they had a vaccine, they get a, a flu type symptom, and everybody around them is now scared to death that they have uh, COVID or been exposed to COVID when that's not the case. They've been exposed to someone that has a, uh, a reaction to the the vaccine, which normally goes away in, in you know, 12, 24 hours, sometimes uh, two days, but that's very, very rare. Mm-hmm. I wonder too, um, Alan, if just the experience of of kind of navigating the pandemic as an emergency manager has it given you some more kind of tips and tricks for how to communicate with people if if they're for you know for other disaster reasons like say there's a storm or even like a wildfire since things are pretty dry right now like could you use some of what you've learned over the course of 2020 and and you know recent months and sort of the, apply that to getting information out etc 
I think so. I, I, there are certain things that worked really well at the beginning of the pandemic that didn't work very well mid to end pandemic. And one of the things that worked very well at the very beginning was uh, we were doing live videos, we were doing uh, Facebook lives, we were doing YouTube uh, lives, we were doing a lot of press conferences, things like that. Um, unfortunately, pretty much with any disaster, but certainly with the pandemic, um, politics started to get uh, intertwined with the disaster itself. So um, it, it became more negative than it was positive. So uh, we, we discontinued some of that. Certainly we wanted to continue to provide information to the public, uh, but uh, the uh, Facebook lives and the YouTube lives, and it just wasn't that successful anymore. Some, some people uh, didn't believe in the pandemic. Some of it, they called it plandemic. Uh, some of them you know, did not believe in the facial mask uh, to a point of, of anger. Um, so we, and we understand everybody had a different opinion on, you know, some people wore facial masks and coverings all the time, never left their house uh, and ordered everything online. Uh, to the other uh, where they didn't believe the pandemic existed at all and everything should just go back to normal. So we understand both sides. Uh, we have to try to navigate that as government. And uh, it was very challenging. And same thing happened really in a hurricane to a lesser degree. You know, people expect uh, things to go back to normal as quickly as possible. So, you know, why didn't the garbage truck pick up my debris? Uh, I mean, every bit of it. And, and, you know, my yard be nice and clean like it was at the very beginning. And sometimes people don't understand. We live in an instant society where you can order something and it's delivered the next day and sometimes even the day that you ordered it. Well, that's different in a disaster. It, things take a little bit longer. You know, clearing roads take a little bit longer. Debris pickup takes a little bit longer, things like that. So we are gonna try to manage expectations a little bit better this year than we did uh, really during Hurricane Irma. During Hurricane Irma at the very beginning, uh, we were talking about um, 1 million cubic yards of debris. Yeah, well, what is that? Who knows what that means? I, I don't know what that means. 1 million cubic yards of debris, nothing comes into my head. You got to talk in swimming pools or, or dump trucks or something, right? Right. So we started using uh, eleven spaceship Earths at uh, at Epcot, mm. and our calls immediately stopped. You know, they just start started decreasing, stopped uh, completely. Uh, we were not getting as many complaints because people understood. Everybody here in the Orlando uh, metro area knows what Spaceship Earth is at Epcot Center. It's an icon of ours in Central Florida. So when you talk about 11 of those, I go on a ride inside of this thing and you're picking up 11 of those. Uh, yeah, I, I get that. The garbage truck can't go by and pick it up. Yeah, it's the communication aspect of it is interesting. And it must be, I mean, you, you, to your point about trying to navigate this as a government agency, but also as a emergency manager trying to help just help people be safe in a disaster um and, and you know you do get a little bit of of kind of skepticism around storms right because if a storm doesn't hit then people are like you scared me for no good reason right there's some uh, maybe a, a bit of an information gap there do you feel like what we went through in the pandemic and, and your you know to your point about the politics kind of getting intertwined with all that has that made your job a little bit harder this year planning for other disasters and kind of trying to anticipate how people are going to respond and how you can get that safety information to them and get them to accept it? I, I think that, you know, um, what we what we all in emergency management, the entire discipline across really the state of Florida, and it's no different here, um, is that we need to 
manage expectations. We need to explain to individuals what it could be like at the end. We don't know if the hurricane's gonna hit or not, um, but we have to do the best that we can with the information we have, just like we did with the pandemic. We, we tried to protect people to the best of our ability based on the science. The same thing is going to happen with a burn ban uh, during drought periods, which we are close to being in at this point. And then also uh, with hurricanes, calling for an evacuation. We, we were preparing to call for an evacuation during Hurricane Dorian a couple of years ago, a Category 5 hurricane that destroyed the Bahamas. And then it turns to the north and goes away. And so, you know, thank God it did. But had that come over Central Florida, that would have been the worst hurricane in all of our lifetime. So we wouldn't, we've never experienced anything like that. One of the things that people also, you know, they, they, and this is typical across the entire country, disaster after disaster after disaster is they judge the disaster by the last event. So, well, I survived hurricane, um, you know, Irma, so I'm going to be fine during this hurricane. Well, you know, if you lived in Seminole County during Hurricane Irma, well, that's kind of a misnomer because you didn't. You lived through Tropical Storm Irma uh, because by the time it had gotten here, or the sustained winds were not hurricane strength. There were gusts, and that's why we saw some of the damage, but they were not sustained. They were sustained at high, very, very high, but uh, not hurricane strength, very high tropical storm uh, strength. So a category uh, one below, just a category one hurricane is much, much different than category four or five hurricane coming over uh, Seminole County. Mm-hmm. Back to what we're looking at now, uh, you know, we're anticipating a, a stronger than average uh, or more active than average hurricane season, maybe dialed down a little bit from what we saw last year when they ran out of names and had to go into the Greek alphabet, which, which was a bit scary. Um, does that change your planning at all, like kind of looking at the forecast? Yes, yeah, so it's uh, whenever I do public speaking engagements, I say, well, what's what's the forecast for this year? And and my answer is, is pretty much all the same. And that is one. I'm planning for one major hurricane to hit Seminole County. Now, if there's going to be more, there's going to be more. But I'm planning for one. I, I am preparing for one major hurricane to hit us this year. I think that that's what the the community wants us to do here in the Emergency Operations Center, to prepare for a category five hurricane coming over Seminole County. And you know, and once that one goes over, I'm gonna guess what? I'm I'm gonna prepare for another one coming over uh, us at a Category Five strength, and what that's gonna look like. But we're always planning for the worst. I, I don't look at the numbers a whole lot. I mean, I, I know what the numbers are, but I don't look at them a whole lot because it, it really doesn't mean much. What what really means a lot is to prepare for the one hurricane. If there's gonna be a hurricane, you know there's gonna be a hurricane this year. What should you start doing right now? That's what we do here in the Emergency Operations Center. What do we need to do right now to get ready for it? And, and we look need to look at gaps. We need to, for us personally, um, we need I, I need to look at my insurance. I need to talk to my insurance agent this year. I need to look around my house and see what's gonna blow around. I need to uh, test out my generator, make sure that it's working properly. And I don't have a large generator. I have a generator that runs a mobile air conditioned window unit and a couple lights. I need to go check my disaster supplies. Hopefully people learned during the pandemic that, uh, you know, people go get crazy things right before a disaster. I I couldn't, I'm the emergency manager of the county. I couldn't find toilet paper or paper towels anywhere. 
you know um, so guess what's gonna happen right before a hurricane it's the same thing every single time I know where the reporters are gonna be all of us do they're gonna be in the grocery store showing the empty shelves every single time yeah the, the uh, toilet paper shortage is a scary one <laughs> I, I, I still today I still don't get the toilet paper shortage I, I uh, that one it really confused me. I'm, I mean, it wasn't a, really a supply issue. There, the, the manufacturers never stopped making toilet paper. It was just people went out and got every bit of it, and and you know some people hoarded it. I mean, to the level of filling garages with it, like it was never going to be made ever again. So, um, <laughs> well, that'll be set for life. Um, on materials, though, like. You know, one thing that I've been reading about is, and this is more of a building story or a construction story, is like the cost of some materials has gone up, right? So there's a bit of a shortage of plywood, for example. I mean, is that something that you, you would say to people if you're thinking of getting plywood, kind of make plans early because you, you could be in short supply come peak storm season? Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, any any kind of supplies, I would say at this point, you know, ne- uh, the June 1st uh, week, there is going to be a tax-free holiday, and that's to encourage people in the state of Florida to go out and get some of those disaster supplies, and uh, this is the time to do it. And and I'm not asking anyone, I don't do it, I'm not asking anyone to go get all the disaster supplies all at once. I don't do it, so I'm not going to ask anyone else to do that. Instead, I get a couple extra supply items each time I go to the grocery store, each time I go to the hardware store. Now, next week, uh, or the week, I'm sorry, the week of June the 1st, uh, I'm going to be, you know, getting a couple other supplies and some of those bigger gaps because I want to save some tax dollars, you know, on some of those expenses. But uh, each time I go to the hardware store, each time I go to the grocery store, I buy a couple extra items. I, I probably have the best disaster kit in my entire neighborhood. I'm not even going to be home during the disaster. I'm going to be here at the emergency operations center. Can your neighbors get their hands on it if needed? <laughs> <laughs> well, my family's going to be taking care of okay. it. And that's what's important. Okay, fair now, enough. Now, those are things to think about as well. Is uh, you know, if if you have to, if if you can evacuate uh, to a friend or family member's house or out of the area, that's something to think about. And certainly, with a higher category and of storm, if you're an individual that's retired or something like that, where you don't have to work the day before. Obviously, if you're a grocery store worker or one of these essential workers that have to work in one of these hardware stores or things like that, you're going to work until the day before the storm. So we're going to have to write it out here. But if you are retired or something like that, you can get on the road early. You know, get on the road early and get out of the, especially if it's a Category 3, 4, 5 hurricane. You, you don't want to be here when that happens. Right. Alan Harris is the emergency manager with uh, Seminole County. Thanks so much for your time, Alan. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Still to come, the pandemic tipped thousands of Floridians into food insecurity. We'll hear from a Melbourne mother of three who wants lawmakers and others to know there's a face to the statistics behind hunger. That conversation when we return. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The pandemic tipped thousands of Florida families into food insecurity, not sure where their next meal was coming from. Melbourne mother of three, Rachel Wilson, recently testified on Capitol Hill about the importance of the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, or SNAP. Wilson says she wants to put a face to the statistics and disrupt preconceptions people may have about who needs help putting food on the table. I spoke to Wilson about food insecurity along with Kelly Quintero, Director of Advocacy and Government Relations at Second Harvest of Central Florida. Well, Rachel Wilson, um, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Also joined by Kelly Quintero. Kelly, thanks as well. Pleasure to be here. Rachel, uh, you you were up on Capitol Hill testifying uh, to the House Agriculture Committee. Uh, is 
maybe a silly question, but is that the first time you've spoken in front of a committee on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C.? It absolutely is. What was going through your mind as you, as you got up there to talk? Uh, the first thing that was going through my mind was I was absolutely terrified that I get to speak with people who, who have so much power to change things for us. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to speak totally from my heart and help them to understand that, you know, first of all, my life it cannot be summed up in the five minutes that I was given to speak. So I had to find a way to get in as much pertinent emotional information as I could to help them understand the impact that they have on not just me, but a lot of single parents, not just moms, not just dads, and our children. Mm-hmm. And what are you hoping that that they would have taken away from that? Like what, what do you want them to do with that information? I want them to take into considerations on how to make the SNAP benefits and second harvest programs better. Um, everything needs a little fine tuning, even as people, we're not perfect. So we can't expect people of that stature to be able to get things perfect every time. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to understand that my kids have a face and I have a face just like many other people out there like me. We're not just names and numbers on paper of income and family size. Mm -hmm. And like many people, you were hit pretty hard by the pandemic, right? That had a a fairly significant financial impact on your business. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what that meant for you and, and why the SNAP program is important to you personally. So the pandemic hit me a lot harder than I expected it to. I thought that the worst of it was over whenever the salon opened back up because I didn't qualify for... Um, unemployment because I am an independent contractor and Mm -hmm. self-employed. Trying to find your way through a PPE loan is a lot harder than you would think it is. The SNAP program was a great way to supplement my income and get food on the table for my kids. So that was one last thing that we had to worry about. I've realized that, um, I've realized that the phrase, it takes a village is a whole lot more meaningful than I ever thought it would be, especially in this time. There, there have been so many people who've done everything they can to help the kids and I out, but SNAP and Second Harvest have been a lifeline in keeping us going without proper nutrition and food on the table every day and night. I can't imagine what would go through my children's heads. As far as the benefits go, when did you realize that you were going to need a little bit of extra assistance? Like, did you kind of go through a period where you're like, I can, I can make this on my own? And I'm wondering sort of what that process was like. So when the salons opened back up, we did have uh, quite a burst of clientele come in. It was all the clientele who'd been waiting for us to open and and get back to their normal daily routine. So for... A few months, I would say, everything was okay, but as they kept talking about the numbers going up of the mortality rate and the number of people getting sick, we saw the clientele start dwindling off. Mm-hmm. It 
I think they expected everything to just go back to normal, but when everything kept rolling about, it's still out there, we still need vaccines, we still need the mask, it started tapering off. So people got their initial, their initial hair done after going, you know, a month and a half without it or two months if they hadn't come in before the shutdown. Yep. It was probably four months ago, four or five months ago, I realized, oh, I might be in trouble. And I had uh, applied for food assistance, but I was having a really hard time finding my way through the, the online application, finding a profit and loss worksheet so it didn't just show the income that I had coming in as a dollar amount. Mm-hmm. Again, like I said, I wanted them to understand on Capitol Hill that we're not just a dollar amount. There's more to our lives. Like I have a pretty high expense in keeping myself working and providing products So I ended up getting a resource packet. I had reached out to um, Miss Miss Angela Narcisse, that's the family advocate at my son's elementary school at Port Malabar, and she had set me up with Jennifer Duros. There was in that resource packet there was actually a phone number for someone, and that was when I reached Jennifer Duros, and she called me up to the library and said let me help you. Because at that point I had called her at wit's end and I wasn't sure what to do. I kept getting denied because I couldn't show how much I had to pay out. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that number on the paper wasn't money that I actually got to keep or take into my household. Kelly, I want to bring you into this um, conversation, uh, uh, you know, as director of advocacy for government relations, you're kind of at the interface between, um, you know, where the assistance comes from and then, and then sort of seeing where, where that goes and who it helps out. Uh, what do you think the gaps are and what would you hope that um, lawmakers could do to to make the system a little easier to navigate for people who maybe aren't familiar with how to kind of work their way through the um, receiving the benefits they need? Yeah, so I think Rachel did a really great job during her testimony to the Congressional Committee talking about what, what's called the benefits cliff. And this is when somebody maybe gets a promotion that they've worked hard for um, and that comes with uh, an additional pay raise or maybe they make a little bit extra money that month. But what it ultimately does is it impacts the total amount that they'll receive for through benefits like SNAP. And so what this really does is it kind of puts them in a weird position where you have to decline the extra money because you can't make and me literally and figuratively um, with that additional funding. Hmm. So we want to, you know, we were able to with work with Rachel to figure out what would work best for her, but she knows exactly how much money she needs to make and can make to make sure she has enough money to pay for the groceries her family needs today. Do you think there are some misconceptions then um, from people who haven't actually uh, use the you know aren't familiar with the SNAP system about what it is and how it works. Like, do people assume that it's just a, a simple, uh, like a simple solution, and maybe it's a bit more complicated than that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when we're talking about the application alone to apply for this program, it is very complicated. Which is why we started the hotline through Second Harvest Food Bank in case anybody needed that assistance, just like Rachel, to get through the application. Mm-hmm. Because it's a, it's a very complicated process. So it's, if it's complicated to apply for, um, it's probably going to be very complicated for people to understand what this program really does. 
And to give you a better context, for every meal that Second Harvest Food Bank puts out into the community, SNAP is able to put out the equivalent of nine meals. There's just no way food banks like Second Harvest could do nine times what we're already doing. So we appreciate and definitely advocate for programs like SNAP to have that funding that is so necessary for Central Floridians. If you're just joining me, my guests are Kelly Quintero and Rachel Wilson. We're talking about the SNAP um, Food Assistance Program. Um, Rachel, back to you for a moment. I wonder, did any of the lawmakers reach out to you after you gave your testimony, or have you been able to talk to some of them? I'm kind of wondering what you think the impact of your, your talk to them was. Like, Did it seem like it hit home to them? I feel like it did. At the end of the conference, I do know that the Chairwoman Hayes had referenced me bringing up pictures of my kids and making sure that she acknowledged the fact that, you know, we're talking about real live children, not names and numbers. Um, I haven't heard from any of the lawmakers, but I did get a really great email forwarded to me. Um, I think Jennifer Duros forwarded it to me. Mm-hmm. It was from, uh, let me see. She said the their CEO for Second Harvest had had wrote about me to them and said he was extremely grateful for what I had did and been able to, his, his exact words were raw emotions expressed that only a person with lived experience can deliver. And it was tough to watch at times. And my heart goes out to the thousands of Rachels that are out there. He then noted the different times of the conference that if you didn't have time to watch the entire two and a half hours, that he felt like it made most impact of what I had to say. And I'm just really happy that I was able to advocate for Second Harvest and SNAP in, in, in such a powerful manner that it had touched his heart as well. Rachel, did you ever think you would, you would be in the situation where you would need this kind of help? I actually grew up in poverty, so it was something that I was totally trying to stay away from. I have utilized the SNAP benefits program a couple times throughout life, just trying to do better for myself and set a better standard of living for my children. Mm-hmm. So the I had been self-sustained since I'd moved to Florida five years ago. I utilized the SNAP benefits program for approximately four months when I first moved here, trying to find the right job making sure that I could provide for the kids. But since then, I didn't need to utilize it again until this pandemic. It's not something that we just want to run out and grab and say, oh, hey, you know, let me just get this because I can. Mm. We don't, you know, parents, they don't want to have to rely on help. They want to have pride in taking care of their children. We want to be able to stand on our feet and do it on our own. Is that a is that something you have to sort of fight against or push back against? Like, do you, do you think people have that? like that kind of misconception about SNAP and who's using it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've heard people tell me that their tax dollars pay for my kids' food, how they have to pay for it. I actually had to get online the other day and look this up. And the and the last dated numbers that I can find for SNAP is that in 2018, the average household that makes a livable wage of approximately $50,000 a year contributes $7 a week, $7 a week to of their paycheck to make sure that kids and families don't go hungry. And it's, I mean, I would be more than willing, even in my situation, as much as I'm struggling now, to give $7 to somebody to make sure their kids and family eat. So people who are making a livable wage, buying their own groceries, paying their rent, paying their bills, not needing to utilize the help of the government, to 
throw it in my face or the face of many others that they're paying for my food seems a little selfish to me that that's how much $7 means to them. Kelly, thinking about the last year and the fact that we that Florida and, of course, the nation was plunged into this sudden economic crisis, um, has that changed your idea a little bit about who needs help and who can, you know, who, who sometimes might might need a little bit of an extra boost to put food on the table for the week or get them through a, you know, a paycheck period? Yeah, so we kind of always knew that there was this population that we'll call the working poor that needed our assistance. But what I think the pandemic really did was it elevated that population and it provided like a visual for people who maybe didn't know that hunger existed before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we've known that for so many years since 1983 when we've been in the community. Um, But what I think that it really helped us do was find out that the community is there for us and they're helping us not just advocate, but provide the food that families need now. Mm. Um, And it's been really interesting to kind of see it. We went from doing 150,000 meals every single day to doubling that to 300,000 meals every single day leaving our warehouses. So we definitely had our work cut out for us. Um, We're still seeing similar needs, but it is going down. But we know that that working poor population is still going to need our system. So how do we continue to reach them and make sure they have connections to SNAP? What would you like to see change then? What do you think needs to change about um, whether it's the SNAP program or whether it's um, kind of attitudes to to people who need assistance or um, just what we need to be doing better to, to make sure people don't fall through the cracks? That's a great question. I definitely don't have the end-all solution <laughs> for it. But you know, I think what we're seeing out of legislators, especially our congressional members, where they're having people like Rachel come and testify and provide the reality of the situation, that gives me some kind of hope where we're not just moving and doing the ebbs and flows of having these meetings yet again. We're hoping to have some real constructive change to come into our communities that need programs like that Mm -hmm. and understanding that the safety net works exactly how it was designed to work where if there's high need it program excels and if there's low need the program slows down a little bit more so i wish i had more answers to that but i think that the optimism comes from seeing Uh, testimonies like Rachel's and also seeing the new administration having conversations about the thirsty food plan just to get us up to 2021. Who would have thought, right? Indeed. Um, Rachel, what's one thing you you wish people would would know about SNAP if they're, you know, not familiar with it? Like what's kind of one critical piece of information that people really need to take away from this? SNAP helps me hide from my kids how bad it is. SNAP reaches out to me as a mother and says, here, we care about you. Second Harvest reaches out to me as a mother and says, we care about you and your kids and we want you guys to eat. And that is the last thing we want you to have to worry about when there are so many other things during this pandemic and in this life and the cost of living to worry about. Food should not be your main concern if you can provide your kids proper proper nutrition and bellies that are not rumbling when they go to bed at night, wondering when am I going to get something else to eat. 
Well, Rachel Wilson is a mother of three from Melbourne. She's a hairstylist. Uh, we've been talking to her about SNAP benefits and the, the program uh, and food assistance. Rachel, um, thanks so much for your time and good luck rebuilding that business. I hope everything goes well for you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me in and letting me tell my story. Absolutely. And Kelly Quintero is the Director of Advocacy and Government Relations for Second Harvest of Central Florida. Kelly, thanks as well. My pleasure. Talk to you hopefully soon again. Up next, could eSports rooms soon be a feature of retirement homes? Growing bold as Mark Middleton thinks so. Next week, he's debuting an intergenerational online competition, Boulder X. More about that after the break. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Growing Boulder CEO Mark Middleton says there's untapped potential for health and wellness and business in online gaming with the 50-plus generation. So that's why he's teamed up with Twitch streamer and musician Matt Hafey, who plays guitar and sings in the heavy metal band Trivium, to launch the Boulder X competition and Growing Boulder's new Twitch channel. I talked to Middleton and Hafey about the tournament and gaming for the 50-plus demographic. Mark Middleton and Matt Hafey, very nice to speak to you both. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Mark, I'm going to start with you. This is something new for Growing Boulder, right? You're you're venturing into uh, eSports. Tell me what you've got coming up and, and what the sort of motivation for it was. Thank you, uh, Matthew. We're very excited uh, to have what we believe is the world's first ever intergenerational tournament uh, online. We're going to play Among Us June 10th on the Twitch platform. Uh, yeah, we believe in social gaming and esports for an older demographic, which is kind of what Growing Boulder has built a business around, and that is smashing all of the outdated and unjustified stereotypes because older people love to play games. Uh, gaming is is healthy for older people. And so we just want to be the first to go there. And we're thrilled to do it on Twitch, which is a great streaming platform. And beyond that, we're really excited to do it with uh, Matt Heafy, who is a well-known streamer on Twitch, uh, also a well-known heavy metal rock star. And what is less well-known is that he's also the director of the Growing Boulder, Boulder X Initiative. Okay, so tell me a little more about the Boulder X Initiative, Mark. This is, this is something new for you this year? It is new. I, I think we've been planning on doing this for some time, Matthew, but I think the pandemic exacerbated the importance of socialization for older people in particular. We were all isolated and had very little opportunity to engage with one another. And uh, the internet provides a lot of different opportunities to do that and streaming in particular. So uh, the Boulder X initiative is, is what we are calling our eSports and social gaming platform. And we're going to do it in partnership with Full Sail University initially and, uh, and regularly throughout the coming months and years on Twitch. Mm-hmm. So Matt, you, you mentioned at the start of our conversation that you're uh, you play in the band Trivium, and I can just for the benefit of our listeners, there's a lot, a lot of guitars lined up behind you, and some uh, some band posters. Was esports something you got into as kind of a side gig from music, or did the two sort of come up together? How, uh, just tell me a little bit about your background. Yep, um, my mom's Japanese, my dad is a Marine. They met each other when he was stationed in Iwakuni. I was actually born in Iwakuni, Japan. We immigrated over here. My mom and I did. My my dad moved back to the states in. 1987 when I was one years old 
my dad was deployed a lot, so my mom basically raised me on what she knew, and a lot of that stuff was anime, Japanese movies, and video games. I was actually playing video games well before I even was aware of what music was. I picked up an interest in music when I was 11, trying out for trivia when I was 12, made it in the band when I was 13 years old. So I've been in trivia. It was my first band, first job. Um, I had video games and music basically in separate facets of my life the whole time, never really realizing I can combine the two. It was about four years ago when I decided to make the move and start streaming on Twitch, which initially was known 100% for being a live gaming platform. Um, when I first came over for the first couple months, it was just gaming, and then I started actually integrating and streaming my music as well. So I started streaming trivia music on top of playing streaming gaming as well, and I had the two worlds merge. And so for the last four years, I've been cons- consistently streaming five days a week off tour, seven days a week on tour unless travel gets in the way. Um, my band is also very streaming forward. We just purchased an airplane hangar, and we're converting that to be our band's practice place, studio, streaming center, and all-around HQ content creation platform. And, and tell me a little more about the game. Among Us is a 10-person game. Uh, what it is, it's, it's more like a murder mystery board game, a game like Clue. And so there's 10 people on this ship. There's very simple tasks like match color to color, letter to letter, consecutive counting, things like that. And two of the 10 are always things called imposters. It's randomly assigned, and those two need to go around and basically kill off the other crewmates. Every time something is suspicious or every time someone sees something weird, finds a body, decides that someone's acting weird, they can call a meeting. And that's when the game becomes really interesting. And that's where everyone in the game actually speaks to each other and they have to convince, hey, it was red that did this. Or, hey, it was blue. I saw doing something weird. Or, yellow, what were you doing? And they're all color-based. So it becomes a game that's about conversation and deception and teamwork. And that's why it works so well. And I find that since streaming so much and since meeting different gamers and streamers and having these new relationships with our viewers... I've seen that sometimes the game is interchangeable and what people really want to see is the conversation between people and what they really want to see is the bond between multiple people and how they make that work. Even things for like shooting games, for example, like it is very much so about strategy and teamwork. Counter-Strike is probably one of the biggest esports games that's ever happened. And that game, I think Counter-Strike's been around since the 90s or so, but still it's it's roughly the same iteration that's out now but because of the strategy involved between the teams it's become something that's you know as big as as big as team sports mark you've had this idea cooking for a while right and then the pandemic came along and interrupted it and but also brought a bit more urgency kind of a need to connect people again so now is a good time to to launch this boulder x initiative but tell me a little bit about your interest in esports like have you been paying attention to to tournaments have you have you been to some of them what's your kind of take on esports in general uh no i really had to have esports explained to me about a year ago uh matthew to, to be honest with you but I, I read a lot about it i became fascinated uh frankly with the corporate interest in it um you know almost every major corporation every major industry every major advertiser is now uh involved in esports because they understand it's a great way to connect with a very passionate audience there are there there are esports athletes who are you know literally making two and a half three million dollars a month playing esports there are legitimate big time bona fide physicians who now actually prescribe esports you know it was funny many many years ago we were told that you know people who were involved in in gaming were just kind of 18 year olds in their parents basement and it was not healthy for them now we're learning that it is healthy for us that it is good for our cognitive development that it is good uh for socialization that it is maybe you know one of the very few things where 
grandparents and grandkids can compete equally and interact in a way that it, that is very, very powerful. So, you know, culturally, there are just a whole lot of benefits. And the more I paid attention to esports, the more I hung out with people like Matt Heafy, the more I began to believe that uh, it really has some powerful application for the health and well-being of older adults, which is really why we're interested in it. A, it's fun. Uh, uh, B, it's good for us. Uh, and C, it, it provides these intergenerational uh, connections. I mean, it's why Matt Heafy and I have become friends. I mean, if you would have told me a year ago, I'd be good friends with uh, a guy who is an international heavy metal rock star who plays to sold out concerts all over the world and has got tattoos from one end of his body to the other, uh, I would have said, well, I, I'd love to meet the guy, but I never will. Well, we've met through this. We've become good friends. And, and that's really what this is all about, what our platform on Twitch is all about. We're going to bring together uh, makers, creators, influencers, whatever you want to call them, for different passions and, and let them talk to one another. It won't just be esports. So the Growing Boulder channel on Twitch will bring together younger painters and older painters, younger musicians and older musicians, uh, younger quilters and older quilters, younger media stars and older media stars. And they'll talk about life from these two different perspectives. So uh, it's, it's really, really exciting. You guys at WMFE bring a lot of very provocative programming to, to people. We're going to do the same thing and, uh, and really, I think, be the first to create an intergenerational media platform. Did you say quilting? Is, is that that's going to be part of this tournament? Uh, no, not not part of this. But after that, after this tournament, we're, we're getting into every type of passion that there is. And we'll bring together people from different generations to talk about it. That's the big thing that with with Twitch that we've seen lately since I decided to make the plunge and start streaming live music. We started seeing that more and more people want to stream everything. And just like I said earlier about how sometimes the game is not necessarily always relevant to what the viewers want to see. They want to see the connection between human beings that we start to see. Like Mark said, makers, craftspeople, guitar builders, having a young guitar builder who wants to get started with it, talking talk to a pro on the Growing Boulder Twitch. So it's going to be about that. It's going to be bringing conversation and bringing different generations together with a medium that could be interchangeable in the middle. It might be a game. It might be two people who share the same skill and the same, the same love for a craft. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining me, my guests are Mark Middleton with Growing Boulder and Matt Hafey, who's a Twitch streamer and musician, talking about the Boulder X uh, competition, the first uh, esports competition geared uh, towards older folks. Um, Mark, do you do you have some favorite kind of esports that you like to watch? I mean, in the course of your research, have you have you kind of uh, glommed onto some stuff that you might want to give a go yourself? No, I don't. I don't. You know, Among Us is the perfect game for us to play because, as Matt said, it's really kind of a board game. It's a party game. Um, I'm too busy to spend a lot of time gaming myself, to be honest with you. I just understand that it has great value uh, for the health of older adults. I honestly believe, Matt, at some point a gaming room uh, will be in every senior living community in America because it's a way that you can sit in front of a computer and you can interact with people all over the world. Uh, I think that its highest and maybe its most profound use will be with older adults. Um, so I'm more focused on trying to make that option available for people who have time to do it. Um, I'm learning as I go. I'm going to help Matt 
call, do the play-by-play for this first tournament on June 10th, and I'll probably be assuming the role of what most of our viewers will be, and that's kind of like the naive, I really don't know what's going on kind of a guy, and Matt Evie will explain it to me. I will say, though, that already with Mark having been on my stream a couple times and me being on Mark's stream a couple times, the Trivium slash Twitch slash Growing Boulder slash general audience of Twitch all loves Mark. And, I mean, he's, he's a superstar with them, and he was amazing at Among Us, very first time he ever played it. And I do the same thing that Mark said, believe that having gaming between different groups of people is such a huge thing. Just yesterday, I did a big memorial stream for Memorial Day stream for StackUp.org. StackUp.org is a veteran and active military-run charity that what they do is they provide mental health outreach. They create gaming packages to send to soldiers who are deployed, ones that are retired, ones that are veterans. It's purely raised off donations for what they do here. And so what I've been able to see is like there's an incredible massive range of veterans that all game as well. So you imagine, you know, 50 plus, 50 through 100 years old, someone has probably served in those groups. So these are these are ways for them to get back into being able to be in a unit and be able to game with each other and have a good time and be able to relate that way. And so it's it's amazing to see like all the different ranges that you can have. And I do believe that, you know, you, you think of people like Mark was saying and like, Senior living facilities, like, they want things to do. It doesn't always have to be board games. And if we can have gaming rooms there, you can have them playing Minecraft or Call of Duty or whatever it may be, whatever they're feeling, and they can find different communities within what they what they like throughout life. Mm-hmm. Mark, how long has the Growing Boulder Twitch been up and running? We launched it, I would say, three weeks ago, but I kind of describe it as a beta version. Uh, we've really not promoted it yet. We're trying to figure it all out, but... Uh, we are putting some investment in our office here, Matt, to create the the ability, uh, the frictionless ability, if you will, to be able to go live and stream at any point. And you know what I've learned from Matt, you know, as a broadcaster, I kind of want everything to be perfect. And we do as much as we can to make sure that, uh, you know, there's uh, as, as few problems as possible. But in, in streaming, it's they, they want to see behind the scenes. They want to see the reality. They want to see you fix the problems when you have them. And yeah, you know, so I've got to get over the fact trying to make it perfect. So uh, it's up and running right now. Uh, just go to uh, twitch.tv slash growing boulder. And then Matt, what do you say? Follow? Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Yep. Following is follow and you, all the channels. And you'll be notified every time we go live. And we are going to create a block of regular programming that hopefully will gradually expand uh, to the point where we're streaming live, uh, you know, several hours every day. So you're kind of content agnostic. You're just see, seeing this as another way to get content out to people, Mark. Like, would you be streaming just regular Growing Boulder programming or is it like special events? Like, what, what's your thought there? Uh, it's going to be a little bit of everything. It will be a channel that will have special events. It will have special tournaments and it will stream some Growing Boulder content. I think that, you know, we've all known for a while, all of us in media, that the future is digital. But you know, that was something that was, you know, reinforced in a very painful message, uh, in a very painful way to many people during the pandemic. If you couldn't interact with people digitally, you weren't going to reach them. So as a media company, we just want to be on every platform and meet people wherever they are. And we're learning that increasingly older people are on streaming platforms, increasingly older people are on social platforms. So we just want to put our content there. Our Twitch channel will be different from our other platforms. But to, to, to answer your question, it will contain some regular Growing Boulder programming, but, but, but we're going to paint outside uh, the lines. We're going to think outside the box and try to do some stuff for an older demographic that nobody's done before. 
Mm-hmm. And what people want to see too, Matt, on Twitch is the host and the viewer conversation. Like that's what Twitch is at its heart. I feel like a lot of people are looking at different social medias and saying, well, why not YouTube? Why not Instagram for different companies or what they may do? And why not this or that? But the difference of what Twitch is, is it all of a sudden turns it into where when I'm streaming, even if there's, you know, the other day on a front page feature, there was 25,000 people watching. Even if there's 25,000 people watching, that one viewer, viewer six or viewer, random viewer 6,049, they feel like I'm speaking directly to them. And that's what Twitch is all about. It's that live instantaneous two-way conversation between host and viewer. And to have the Growing Boulder channel, have Mark speaking with you know other experts at their craft, legendary musicians, or bringing on people who, like Mark said earlier, a master quilter who's talking to someone in their 20s who wants to become a master quilter when they're older. Having those conversations where they, then they can interact in real time with the viewers there in that moment. That's what the heart of Twitch is. It's all about community and bringing in different communities from different aspects of life with Growing Boulder being a lifestyle brand that has always been about creating community within Growing Boulder. Now you can have these different facets of people's interests and then speak to those those viewers directly in that moment. Uh, just to wrap up here, I wonder um, if you could just kind of outline some of the basics. Like if people are interested in the Boulder X tournament, uh, what should they expect? Where can they go to see it? Twitch.tv slash Growing Boulder. Everyone hit follow, turn notifications on. That's Growing Boulder's Twitch channel. Next Thursday, June 10th at 1 p.m. Eastern is the Growing Boulder Intergenerational Among Us tournament. It's 10 players with 10 of their coaches, essentially. The 10, quote, coaches are streamer friends of mine, streamer friends from my community that are basically there to run IT. Anyone can play games. The next level up that we'll start teaching people with Growing Boulder's Twitch is how to stream. How to stream is a little bit a little bit of a couple more steps, but we've got 10 streamers there, and they all have their 50-plus them. That's their mentee, the streamers, their coach. So that's that's the intergenerational component. And that will be June 10th, 1 p.m. Eastern. Well, we've been speaking to Mark Middleton. He's the founder and CEO of Growing Boulder, talking about the Boulder X Games uh, next week. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Matthew, I appreciate it. Uh, congratulations uh, on, on all that you do, and thank you for WMFE. And also joining us, Matt Hafey. He's a guitarist with the band Trivium. He's also a Twitch streamer. He'll be co-hosting the Boulder X Games. Matt, thanks so much for your time as well. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Good to talk to you. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this week's show from our intern, Brittany Caldwell. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find archived shows on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.